Thanks for tuning into the Texas Family Law Podcast, where we provide you tips and insight to help you navigate divorce and child custody situations. This is Brian Walters. And I'm Jake Gilbreth. We are the managing partners at Walters Gilbreth PLLC with offices in Houston, Austin, and Dallas. And we're both board certified in family law by the Texas Board of Legal Specialization. Your hosts are broadcasting from the Lone Star State of Texas, where both have earned a reputation as fierce and effective advocates, both inside and outside the courtroom. All right, good morning. Jake and I are back today to uh, discuss uh, about filing for sole custody in Texas and what that means, how that works. And Jake, do you want to define the that term for us yeah i think so. it's i think it's a common sort of i would say lay person's term to come in and talk about sole custody and people come to us a lot and say i want sole custody of my kid what does that mean how do i get it and yeah i think the first step is to talk through and define terms of what we're actually talking about in a possession in a child custody order which is interesting because custody is not even a word in in the texas family code it would when we're looking at orders re, uh, related to children, we're talking really primarily about three things. That's conservatorship, possession and access, and child support. And so backing through those, child support, how much a parent, one parent pays the other parent for support of the child and health insurance and unreimbursed medical expenses, those types of things. Possession and access is when we talk about visitation. I think that's the layperson term, but the term in the, uh, the family code is actually possession and access. And then there's conservatorship. And conservatorship has to deal with decisions for a child. The biggest one being who has the right to determine the primary residence of a child. So just taking that word custody, when people talk about custody, and judges and, and lawyers do it too. It's a logical term. It's just not the legal term for it. But what they're actually talking about is the right to determine the primary residence of the child. That's who has, quote unquote, custody of the child. That's the biggest decision but there's uh, a variety of other decisions that are outlined in the family code. In section 153.132 of the family code talks about those rights and duties. And like we said, there's conservatorship, uh, there's the right to determine the primary residence, and then there's, and I'm going to put the exact number, there's 10 other or 10 total rights and duties. The primary, the biggest one, obviously, like I said, being the right to determine the primary residence, but then there's also the right to consent to medical procedures that involve invasive procedures, right to consent to psychological and psychiatric treatment, to make educational decisions. Those are the biggest ones that we talk about when we talk about conservatorship. So that's that sort of takes that word custody. Where we're talking about custody, we're actually talking about conservatorship. And then when people come in, they talk about sole custody. If they're talking about decision-making, we can talk about possession in a second, but if they're talking about decision-making, there is two types of arrangements, really three, but two types of, really two uh, types of arrangements of court can do in a custody order. One is that the parents are made joint managing conservators, and the other is that a parent can be made sole managing conservator of the child, and the other parent be made a, what's called a possessory conservator. And then there is a, a provision in the family code that the court can actually appoint one parent sole managing conservator and not even make the other parent a possessory conservator if some specific findings are made. But that's a big overview of conservatorship. But I guess, Brian, can you talk to us about when people sole sole managing conservatorship versus joint managing conservatorship, what that looks like. Sure, and and I think when people say sole custody, to me, because I we talk to folks all the time about that, they either mean one of those two things that they they get to make all the decisions, or the other parent doesn't get to 
have any possession or meaningful possession. And sometimes that means both. But so conservatorship, sole conservatorship is essentially saying those 10 major items are going to be all made by one parent and they're not going to have any obligation to get the other parent's agreement and really even to get their input on it. Now, out of those 10, a good five of them are probably so obscure that most people are not going to run across them. But those are big deals, especially when you're talking about educational decisions, medical or psychological counseling type decisions. Those are those are really important things. And, and the default is a joint managing conservatorship. And I think a lot of times these days, the default is also that you need to at least confer with the other parent, even if you're the tiebreaker to get their input and opinion about it. But as a sole managing conservator, you have no obligation to even do that. You just, you just, if you want to move schools for the child, you just do it. And the other parent finds out when it's already happened. Or if you want to, if there's going to be surgery for the child, you, you consent to your child's surgery and you can essentially tell the parent, the other parent, uh, when they're done with the surgery or take them to a counselor if you have suspicions or concerns and just essentially tell the other parent, uh, uh, post counseling that's occurring. So it's that's a really powerful thing, especially if those are issues that you have with a parent. How often do you see uh, a parent being awarded sole managing conservatorship? It's, it's rare. I think I'm pretty clear with people that when they come and talk, it is rare. We've certainly had that happen. The presumption is joint managing conservatorship, and we'll talk about how the court can deal with those rights and duties, even in a joint managing conservatorship, we'll talk about that in a second. But the presumption is joint managing conservatorship. And frankly, judges to push people towards joint managing conservatorship, even if it's just the title of joint managing conservatorship. And like I said, we could talk about that in just a second. But we have had, you know, quite a few cases usually that were tried, tried to a judge or a jury where we got our client awarded sole managing conservatorship. But those are usually tried. It is rare that you go to a mediation and the other side goes, yep, you're right. You can be sole managed conservator and, and I'll be what's, what's called a possessory conservator. And by the way, the term possessory conservator is it's misleading. Uh, possessory conservator, I think a lot of people think that means that I have possession of the child most of the time. Possessory conservator is actually the, the opposite of sole managing conservator where you don't get to make any of those, those big decisions. But, but back to the Often it happens at the end of a contested trial, been able to convince convince judges and juries of that, but it, they, they are, you know, difficult cases and they have to be litigated. I guess the other thing I'll, I'll point out on that, though, is the Family Code does say the most clear instruction that the Family Code has on conservatorship is there is a section of the Family Code that talks about there's been a history or pattern of family violence, then the court shall do sole managed conservatorship. And that's a shall. That's not a should think about it, presumption, things. that's a shall, that if the court finds that there's a history or pattern. So you, if you have cases where there's a protective order involved, something like that, then a lot of times you, you'll see sole managing conservatorship being ordered in, in those situations. What about you? I agree. And that's interesting. It tells you how serious the family violence issue is taken in our family code. If you think about it, the most common reasons for sole managing conservatorship are family violence, addiction issues, and mental health issues. And then I guess, fourthly, just some kind of inability to function as a parent or as an adult. But out of those four, each of which are very serious problems, only one, family violence, has is, is got the shower wording about it. And there's really, like you said, there's not even really a debate about that. So if there has been a history or pattern of family violence, that's something you should definitely bring to the attention of your attorney. And that may be your gateway to the sole managing conservatorship. 
So what can a court do? So when I think a lot of people, when they say, do I want sole managing conservatorship or sole custody? They, they are thinking about those decisions. They go, I don't want joint because I don't want to have to make joint decisions with this person. And we just finished a trial, for example, this week where the parties were joint managing conservators. And it was a problem because they were ordered under temporary orders to make what we refer to as true joint decisions. And they had to agree on these major decisions in order for them to happen. Which if you think about it, for example, if a court says for psychological and psychiatric decisions, y'all have to agree about whether or not your child goes and sees a counselor. You really do have a one parent making the decision then because whoever says no is the one making the decision. It essentially gives a parent veto. So if you're true joint managing conservators where you have to make uh, joint decisions, for example, on psychological and the other parents are like, I don't think your, our kid needs counseling, you're stuck. Uh, you can't get counseling without having to go back to court. So I guess, Brian, can you talk about ways that courts address that while still saying parents are joint managing conservators? Sure. And it's usually addressed by saying you need to confer with each other. But that really, if that's the only requirement, you still have to have a tiebreaker. And if that's the kind of the primary parent, it's almost like a sole managing conservatorship. It's just that let's say that you wanted to move your child from one school to another. You're the primary parent. Under a sole managing conservatorship, you just do that. And then you tell the other parent later at some point, say, hey, by the way, there are kids at a new school. Under joint managing where you have a right to uh, or you have an obligation to confer with the other parent, you would say, look, hey, I'm thinking of moving our child from Smith Elementary to Jackson Elementary. And what do you think? And the other parent says, I don't want to do that. I think they ought to stay where they are. You can essentially say, too bad, <laughs> screw you. And uh, yeah. they're moving. And so the outcome's the same. It just, it's a feel-good provision in some cases. I think parents who are really trying to co-parent would take that into consideration and would try to make it more than just a, a check in a box that, well, I sent them an email and then did it anyway. But that's really the outcome. The other possibility is having some other mechanism to decide things. Let's say, for example, that was a big issue that two parents were wanted to make sure that their children didn't get moved to a different school because they wanted to live in the near, you know, nearby. You could agree, look, parent has got the right to make educational decisions, but this child is going to attend Smith Elementary, Jackson Middle School, and Williams High School in Austin or wherever. And then there's that's already been dealt with. And we don't, you don't have to fight in the future or have conflict in the future about which school the child's going to attend or which pediatrician they're going to use or, or whatnot. So that's one way to work around. That's not foolproof because life can intervene, things can come up and that might become unworkable 10 or 12 years down the line, or even a couple years down the line. Another option is to have some other person be a tiebreaker. This is a common one where there's or medical decision-making issues. You could say the pediatrician is going to be the tiebreaker, or if, you're, if it's a counseling issue, you're going to say the child's existing counselor is going to be the tiebreaker. Those are ways to work around those. Again, those have their own set of problems. Do you want to talk about, especially with the third-party decider yeah, why see. that's a problem, potentially? Yeah, because I, I see people do that a lot. And people come to us with court orders that, that say that. And just like Brian was saying, the, what you want to avoid, or what you want to be wary of, at least, in a joint managing conservatorship is when the order says, y'all have to agree or it doesn't happen. It's all subject to agreement, because then you can get stuck. People come to me sometimes if they have a, a court order that says, uh, education's by agreement. It doesn't even spell out where the kid goes to school. It's just a timeout, like what happens if y'all can't agree on where the kid goes to school? He doesn't go to school. That doesn't make sense. Or 
somebody will come in with it when they have independent rights on education. That doesn't make sense. The tiebreakers isn't, I, I think people started doing tiebreakers because they want people, they want a mechanism where the parents aren't stuck in a situation where they can't agree and then nothing happens for the kid. But like you're saying, I think that's, if you really don't think about it, then they, they can be problematic. Invasive, so take, for example, invasive medical procedures. I see people who a lot of times say, we have to agree on invasive medical, and if we don't, then the pediatrician is a tiebreaker. That one's not the end of the world. I don't. I think that one sometimes makes sense, but yeah, think about it. A pediatrician may not be. Most of your your kid's pediatrician is not going to want to be the tiebreaker on the major decision like surgery. They're going to sit there and say, "I think you should do that," or they're going to refer you to a specialist more likely. And invasive medical, I usually don't. I usually tell people on invasive medical that you can do a tiebreaker, but really, invasive medical. I've been practicing 11 years. I've never, I litigated invasive medical issue once. And those are usually pretty straightforward lawsuits because either the doctors are saying do it or don't. And a judge is going to go with what the doctor says. I guess there's no guarantees in life, but I can't imagine a situation where a judge doesn't just go with what the doctor says. But then people do tiebreakers on counselor. I see this one a lot where people come in and they say, okay, we're going to make joint decisions on psychological decisions and psychiatric decisions. If we can't agree on counseling, then uh, the child's pediatrician is going to make the, the do, do the tiebreaker. I, I, for some reason, I see people with a child's pediatrician in there a lot. It's like, what child's pediatrician is going to sit there and say, little Johnny needs to go see a counselor? By the way, I see little Johnny twice a year for well checks. How on earth would a, a, a pediatrician be able to say whether or not he needs to go see a counselor? But uh, sometimes you see people do the school counselor. Even then, these people aren't going to make tiebreaking decisions. They're going to make recommendations to parents. For example, if you have a child that would be, I talk to people about this a lot. My, my son's on the autism spectrum. So when my son was you know, two years old, his pediatrician said, look, I think that what y'all are describing, he may be on the spectrum. You should go get him tested, which me and his mom, we were divorced, but we were able to get on the same page and we agreed. But that pediatrician was never going to say, you guys shall go get this child tested. He must go get tested to whether or not he's going to be on the autism spectrum. That, that's not his job at the end of the day. So I don't get it when people sign up like the child's pediatrician to be a tiebreaker and stuff. Now you can do educational decisions. People sometimes do tiebreakers, which makes sense as far as if we can't agree on the school, we're going to use this metric. Or if we can't agree on the the school, we're going to have this educational consultant and make a recommendation. I I think you can do that, but I'm pretty wary of tiebreakers. Me personally, when I do it, I don't know about you, Brian, your experience, but I, I'm pretty wary of them. I see mediators pitch them a lot because it's a feel-good way of trying to get something resolved, but they cause a lot of problems and, and they're really not practical. I think that's right. They get people to agreements because they think that's the solution. And and I think probably in life, most of the time, the issue isn't going to come up in a way that needs to be relitigated. So for many people, it, it does work only in the sense that there's not a problem. <laughs> but if there is a problem, you're right. They're not they're not going to do it. And I think school counselors are the perfect example. They're going to go, if they're asked to do something like that and they have any brains at all, they're going to talk to their principal or their whatever. And their lawyer for the school district is going to tell them to not say anything. We don't get dragged into these people's conflict. And so uh, I think they're just going to pass on it. And you're not, you're going to either have to deal with it as co-parents together without that 
a safety valve, or you're going to have to come back to court to get some resolution if the problem arises, and, and maybe it won't. Okay, let's talk briefly then about the other part of what people often mean by sole custody, which is I don't want the other parent to have possession of the child or not much or restricted. And those are really the options, right? So the normal, uh, the presumption in Texas is that one parent's going to establish a residence and be the quote unquote primary uh, parent when it comes to possession, which just means time. And the other parent's going to have a standard possession order, which has a couple variations, but it's, it's, a, it's a good chunk of time. It's quality time. But that isn't the way it is for everybody because there are problem parents. And we have the same group of problems that we have with conservatorship, family violence, addiction issues, uh, mental health issues. And I can, again, just the best term I can think of is just failure to function as an adult or inability to put your child's needs ahead of your own, probably the, whatever that category is, that fourth one. And those are all reasons why a court can restrict a parent either partially or fully from having access to their child. Do you want to talk about a couple of those and what, how courts typically approach them when there is a problem parent? It depends on the problem, I think, with it. the presumption of standard possession order. But I think we we're doing a, doing a consult yesterday where a parent had no access to a child except for two hours a month supervised because of drug and alcohol issues and stuff. I think it's back to the issue of when people say sole custody, a lot of times they are talking they, they do mean they want no access. And it's rare that there's no access. There's usually, because if you're at the point where you're doing no access, then you really should be at the point where you're talking termination, probably. But, you know, the court's going to put in provisions that if you have the problem parent, like you were talking about, that we're going to we're gonna have supervised visits, we're going to have drug and alcohol testing. There's lots of different ways that it can look to change up the possession schedule to make things safe for the child at the end of the day. And ultimately, that's what the court's going to care about. They're not going to care about, you know, a parent's feelings or their rights as a parent, you know, that, that they care about the rights, but at the end of the day, it's just like, I want a parent, a child having a relationship with a parent, but it's going to have to be safe. And so there's, I think there's lots of different mechanisms for how they can do that. Oops, I had myself on mute there, but I agree. It's it as many ways as I've seen a court do it or settle as there are possibilities for possession. But I think the goal of courts is to try to get both parents involved as long as they're safe and functioning. And it is difficult to get off of that standard possession order, but if it's justified and called for, they'll do it. They, I think they try to make it temporary rather than permanent, but it, sometimes it needs to be permanent. And those are the realities of it. Um, I think there's also gamesmanship in some of this litigation where sometimes a parent will be seeking more time than they really want to spend with the children, or, or maybe they change their mind over time. And sometimes it's the other way around where there's directly or indirectly a parent is, is using time or possession with the child to obtain something else. And I, I think courts are real sensitive to that. And we need to be real careful to make sure our clients don't come across that way. And of course, they also don't get you know, intimidated or or use, use that as, as leverage to, to obtain a bad settlement. I think those are the, the big picture items for sole custody. And hopefully we've cleared up some of the, the wording around that and what those terms mean. And the family code has its own set of uh, confusing terms like possessory conservator, like you pointed out, which don't make any sense. So hopefully we've cleared some of that up and I'm sure we'll have further podcasts that drill down on some of these other issues more specifically in the future because they are Certainly some of them uh, are really complex and deserve more attention than we have for this kind of broad overview. Yeah, Anything else you right. want to add or? Do you think no, I think that's it. That's issue. it for this week. 
Okay. Very good. Thank you. And we'll, we'll be back soon. All right. Bye.